Munchie, welcome to the Job Turn Call podcast. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate that. Yes, thank you for having me here. Hey, absolutely. You run something really interesting, and you are the co-founder and the CIO of Amtalon Capital, which really focuses on investing primarily in equities in Iran, from what I understand. That sounds really cool and really unique. I have never heard about an investment fund out there that actually invests in Iran. How did that happen? How did you get started? And why Iran? Why not something that's uh, a little more politically correct, so to speak? Ah, yes. Well, it is, uh, it is super exciting. And when I speak to the local regulator in Iran, they, they, they tell us that we are their favorite foreign investor, foreign institutional investor, because we are the only one, right? There is really no other institutional, foreign institutional investor in Iran. So we are the only ones. So um, I decided to, to launch Shamtelon Capital back in 2016, when JCPOA, the, the nuclear agreement was implemented. And um, well, and, 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 and the reason why Iran and not something else was, was actually, this is, this is actually pretty, pretty simple. There was no other market. There's still, there is still no other market at this moment uh, in the world with um, lower valuations, um, a higher growth potential, both like a long-term structural growth potential, as well as near-term um, growth that will be coming from the reopening of, 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 of the country or reintegration of the country with the rest of the world. And to be honest, this is potentially the, the last opportunity of this size. So um, the type of opportunity I mean is a transformational opportunity. So a country going from one um, situation, because it's not from one system to another, I don't expect any political, um, you know, revolutionary transformation there. But, but, the, but the economic situation will change, uh, will change from um, a, you know, decades of sanctions where the economy was basically cut off from the rest of the world to the economy that is slow, uh, slowly uh, opening up, uh, catching up with the rest of emerging markets. Uh, with everything good that happened in the rest of the emerging markets over the last uh, two decades. Um, and um, uh, on top of that, um, no one is there. So Americans cannot touch it. So all the big funds out there have to wait until the primary US sanctions are lifted. So suddenly you get, you get to go to a new market like this of this size um, and and invest before the big U.S. funds go there. It doesn't doesn't happen too often. And what what I mean uh, of this size, what I mean by this size is, you know, that's another unique thing is that you may have some frontier markets that you can get excited about because of demographics, you know, growth potential, whatever. Um, but usually um, they have no capital markets. You can go and 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 launch startups, build a factory, a bank, whatever. Um, and here you you already have uh, pretty well developed capital markets, um, stock market with 600 companies. Um, right now it's around 250 billion dollar market cap. Back in 2016 it was already 100 billion dollar market cap, uh, and right now several hundred million dollars uh, turnover per day. Um, so you know big enough market to be attractive even for big investors i mean it, it too big to ignore basically and 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 for us with with a with a new fund startup fund uh, that wants to uh, basically focus on this niche and um, uh, do the initial fundraising and so on well there was there was uh, looked uh, as an amazing setup uh, with everything that we needed in place so so hence the decision and you know the important thing is that i had no connections to iran so I, I actually had never met an Iranian in my life before my first visit to, to Tehran. So I had no bias. It, it wasn't the case that, you know, my, I don't know, half of my family was actually from Iran. So it was somehow convenient for me to focus on this market and maybe travel more, whatever. Um, no, I, I, I was able to focus on any market out there. And um, Iran was just based on the risk reward that I saw there, uh, risk being obviously geopolitics. But it seemed to be at that time turning in, um, you know, into more positive momentum uh, and reward coming from the lowest valuations in the world and all this um, and all this growth potential um, looked to me like, uh, yeah, exactly like the best risk reward out there.
Yeah, so it's either a very gutsy or a very crazy decision that you made a couple of years back. I, I hope it's the former. Um, one thing that I heard you talk about um, on another show is that you compared Iran right now to a post-1990s Russia. Eastern Germany did very low earnings um, to valuation ratios. You had very... Just this climate where, where everyone had this, this, this appreciation of change, appreciation of the future, entrepreneurship was strong and was really grassroots. Not what we see now in the US where you need to be at $3 billion. No, it's something where, where we all felt, and I was part of that in Eastern Germany, where we all felt the future is kind of in our hands. I and mean, we did this grassroots, and that's the Taleb's um, grassroots entrepreneurship, um, as he describes of what we are missing. And it, it really drove in Eastern Europe really quickly into. Well, a decent um, part of the European community where they are right now, rather than 10, 15 years, it happened really quickly. Why do you say Iran is at a, at a similar precipice? And do you see any catalyst that it will very quickly, say the next 10 years, will be more like a normal Middle East country, which is, you know, the Middle Eastern countries all are, they have quite a bit of turmoil. Um, at least some of them, we just talked about Syria in a couple of episodes ago. Why do you think Iran is at the precipice? Yeah, look, so it is it is fair to compare it to uh, to Eastern Europe in the 90s. Um, it's not the same. It's always it's always different. But what I mean by that is that certain certain dynamics may be similar. So going from one system that is uh, restricted in some way in Eastern Europe, it was, you know, socialism slash communism and this uh, people were entrepreneurial, but they were not free to really um, um, to really f- you know do what what they wanted to do. And and then after 1989, all, all this unlocked. Torsten, uh, I lost you completely for a moment. I'm here. I'm here. Um, okay. Good. Average. Good. I I I lost the, the screen for the moment. Okay. Anyway, so what I was saying. So in Eastern Europe after 1999, um, all this energy was unlocked basically, and uh, and people started really wanted to work, and they started uh, you know chasing their dreams, and and this and you could see this entrepreneurial entrepreneurship in in action. Um, it was quite chaotic in the 90s. You know, I, I I lived in the 90s in Poland, and it was chaos. I mean, there were. You know, institutions were not working properly. It was uh, uh, corrupted. Bureaucracy was 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 a huge headache. Uh, it was absolutely a mess in many places. But it worked, and 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 um, the pace of changes was 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 amazing. So so everything was very dynamic. So after ten or twenty years, Poland changed completely, and the rest of the East, of Eastern Europe, uh, it became much more stable, um, much more easy uh, to forecast, but also hence much more institutionalized in, in every corner. But hence also the, you know, your expected return also much closer to the mean, let's say, to, to whatever from, I don't know, investing in real estate right now in Eastern Europe is similar to, to, to Western Europe, actually, in terms of your, you know, risk reward. Um, so, so this is what I expect in Iran. Um, a, a similar uh, growth coming from um, people who are entrepreneurial and from foreign investment. Because look, the same the same role as Eastern Europe played for Western Europe in the 90s, for Germany mainly, uh, but also France, Italy, where um, Eastern Europe was basically a hub, a source of cheap labor, where it made total sense to locate your factories over there, take advantage of this cheap labor force, and then also um, be ready to to benefit from the from the growing uh, middle class that was showing up there like ten or twenty years later, um, and suddenly it was you know it became an important consumer market. Same thing will will happen in Iran. I mean, Iran. Look, Iran is is, is quite a big country. It's eighty four million people. They have the largest um, oil and gas reserves combined oil and gas reserves in the world. Plenty of um, zinc and uh, zinc and copper um, resources as well, but the most important 
uh, resource is is the population, is the Iranian population. It's a well-educated society uh, with a median age of you know 30 years old, um, where I think it's not it's it's unlike the rest of the Middle East. It's not very similar to to, to other Middle Eastern countries. It's um, you know the sense of five thousand years of history that they have is you can you can feel that and this is and this is what's what's been important for them generation after generation so this focus on 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 education and so on um so you have very skilled labor force which because of the sanctions is right now cheaper than in vietnam so uh, you know, the average salary is probably around two hundred dollars um, in Iran. You can you can even hire um, computer scientists, uh, so people who can code uh, for you know eight hundred bucks. Uh, whereas you know even in, in Nizhny Novgorod, somewhere in the middle of Russia, it costs you three thousand dollars, right, to hire someone. Um, so um, right now, for you, if you're a big you know European or Asian. Um, company corporation and want to uh, looking for a place to to manufacture stuff and then also to start promoting your brand because you will find uh, you, know, you want to be present in the new consumer market it's a no-brainer to go there but also you know it's not only that it's not only these 84 million people because Iran has very good links with um, other countries in the region um, all the neighbors so Iran plus all the neighboring countries, it's 500, more than 500 million people. And, and countries like uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, which is obviously in the news right now, um, they import most of, most of their products from, from Iran, the products they consume from Iran. Uh, not only oil or gasoline, but uh, you know, food, um, um, cars, car parts, um, even cement. Uh, so, so, so things that are not, not that easy to, to, to import. Um, so, Companies that are based in Iran um, are well positioned to export in the whole region. So this is another argument for big multinationals to uh, to go to Iran as soon as you know geopolitics allow. So this is one uh, another reason why I think that you know it could it could be similar to Eastern Europe. Of of course the the differences are big as well because you know Eastern Europe uh, or at least you know Central Central Europe was um, on the path to NATO and then European Union quite quickly. So nothing like this will happen in Iran. Uh, but but what, will, what, what might be similar, and I think will be similar, is that um, big investment, big FDI investment should come from um, European, major European companies, you know, which are already there. A lot of Swiss and German companies and French and Italian companies are already there, have been operating under the radar throughout, throughout the Trump administration just not to get into trouble, um, but have been, you know, patiently waiting for, for an opportunity to scale up their, their operations. And, and we, are in talk, uh, we are in touch with them. We're speaking with all of them to understand what's going on. And, um, and yes, and they're all thinking about expanding their operations. Same for big yeah. Japanese companies. Yeah. Well, when we, we just talked about sanctions, but only briefly, and I think this is, this is a huge catalyst, right? So maybe we, we, we roll up at the story of sanctions a little bit, right? So from, from what I know, and this is very limited, the sanctions were put in place um, for the nuclear uranium enrichment um, that um, a lot of countries were concerned that there's a nuclear weapon that Iran will build and use against Israel. I think that was the biggest concern. Um, a really um, near-term concern. And then there was an agreement reached, um, I think it was under the Obama administration, that they stopped doing this. They only use it for civilian purposes for a couple of nuclear power plants. And then once they adhere to this, it would be... And that was, I think, the story of the end of the Obama administration. That was basically the catalyst for working with Iran with less sanctions, right? So there's still sanctions in place with much less. And then Trump came around, picture changed, and Iran was that, that big, big bogeyman. Based on the analysis of that administration, that there was a lot of state-sponsored terrorism. And we know that Iran does it through proxies. Um, and obviously what's terrorism and what's the freedom fight, fight is very difficult to say sometimes, right? So we do know that there is a gray line, um, a gray zone, that we see this in Tali with the Taliban in Afghanistan who were friends, enemies. Now they are like an administration. We really, really don't know what they are and who they are to an extent. So maybe you can help us understand so what happened to these sanctions. Um, are they justified? 
And do you think they're just going to go away very soon under the Biden administration, which would be obviously a huge catalyst? So there are many different types of sanctions, and those sanctions have been in place for quite a long time. I mean, you know, the first the first event um, that influenced the relations between the, um, Iran and the U.S. was obviously the Iranian Revolution, 1979, and the takeover of of, of the U.S. embassy and the and the American hostages. So you know, it happened long time ago, but it's. Um, uh, based on what I what I managed to to find out and understand, this is something that basically poisoned the relations for the you know decades to come. Uh, it's 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 actually amazing. But this 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 one event was so strong that it uh, fueled the you know the propaganda on both sides, meaning American politicians were using this argument to, to you know to portray Iran as the as the bad actor always and 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 was very much in line you know with the recent history and uh, and with the sentiment in the US Iran obviously did the opposite i mean the same thing but um, uh, towards the US in its own country so uh, you know death to america um, uh, for the last uh, 40 or 50 years um, uh, and 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 this is the the, the big satan and um, the whole maybe not the policy but you know the philosophy of the country is very much centered around you know the um, active uh, uh, fight against you know the U.S. So it's a problem because then when they sit down and want to talk, it's just much more difficult because even if they want to make a deal quickly and smoothly and if they they agree on the principles, they have a lot of this sentiment that is a very you know long term and well established on both sides that they need to deal with. So I think this is actually the biggest issue in, 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 in speaking to each other. Then at some point, they also had, you know, more hardline leadership on, on both sides, right? So either, you know, uh, on the US side when Iran was getting into the axis of evil or any, you know, this type of philosophy. Then in Iran, you had Ahmadinejad who was, you know, basically talking about removing Israel from the map and and firing missiles and uh and he got, I think, the, the very heavy UN sanctions on the country, where even Russia and China voted to impose, you know, sanctions on Iran. Um, so, uh, and that was, I think, you know, somewhere between 2009 and 2013. Um, so what changed later? Aha, and then Obama actually initially increased sanctions on Iran before uh, making a move, uh, offering uh, to negotiate and offering to um uh, to sign the nuclear deal which happened in 2015 was implemented 2016 and the nuclear deal w- said that um un sanctions were lifted and us secondary sanctions were lifted so what was left were us primary sanctions now what what that means is so us primary sanctions basically say that um americans cannot touch iran they cannot invest there they cannot do business with iranians and so on um, nothing. And um, U.S. secondary sanctions say that everyone else should not be doing, you know, either the same thing as Americans or, or to, to a less extent. So um, uh, what happened was that the secondary sanctions were lifted, U.N. sanctions were lifted. So suddenly all non-U.S. persons were allowed to engage with Iran. And that was in 2016. That was, you know, why we got involved with Iran, why there was a lot of excitement um, uh, in Europe, um, especially about, you know, business in Iran, because um, the legal obstacles were gone. Um, now, this this obviously changed uh, with the change of the U.S. administration, but that was but that was the, the situation then. And um, look, like the big, big opening, meaning when Americans could start to invest in the country in, in Iran, uh, could happen after primary sanctions were lifted. But this this will be a longer term process. I mean, this will require uh, Congress approval. This will require so Republicans will have to be. I think at least ten Republicans will have to be on board. Um, so it will not happen uh, soon, and it would have to be combined with um, with also you know other things that Iran would commit to. So not only the 
um, nuclear, uh, the uranium enrichment that, that you mentioned. So, so yes, okay, so going back to, to, to Obama, um, Obama said, um, you stop uranium enrichment um, uh, and, and, we, and we lift uh, the secondary sanctions. And well, pretty much uh, this, this is what happened. Um, now, what Obama wanted in the long term and then what Trump said was that, okay, but we want you to also stop doing other things like meddling in the region. So stop sponsoring all the, all the militias, all the, all the groups across the region uh, that are causing problems and, um, and also stop working on your uh, missiles, on your ballistic systems. Um, so when Iran hears that, they are saying, well, first of all, missiles, I think it's a no-go. They will, I think they will never agree to, to stop working on, 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 on their, uh, well, defense systems or missile systems. They say it's only defense systems. Why? Well, they, look, after the revolution, so 79, where the country was, you know, still not well set up, um, Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq at that time, attacked Iran using actually a lot of weapons that he got from Americans. And uh, Iran didn't have any missiles at that time, and they couldn't defend uh, against, you know, what, 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 what Hussein was throwing, throwing at them. And at that time, Iran actually reached out for help, uh, you know, to Europe, to the US, to the neighbors and so on, and they didn't get any help from anyone. And now they are using this argument, and I think it actually makes sense uh, that, look, uh, we have the right to protect ourselves, uh, we experienced, you know, a, a serious eight-year war that was devastating. Um, no one helped us, uh, so sorry, but we will not negotiate on that. And so this is one argument. And then when it comes to, you know, the, the groups working in the region, well, it's more nuanced. I mean, obviously, uh, the U.S. will say, look, these are terrorists and you're just supporting terrorists. Uh, Iran uh, will say, look, as, 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 you, as you pointed out, these are freedom fighters, or these are Shia minorities in a Sunni um, a Sunni region, and um, you know, and 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 they need help because they are a minority, and 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 everyone around them is aggressive. So so we are just supporting our own, um, and this is, or we are supporting supporting you know Palestine or uh, or the minority in Lebanon um, or or Yemenis. Or Shia minority in Nigeria, actually. Uh, so yes, this is this is the philo philosophy. Uh, then you know the U.S. will say, which is a valid argument. Look, they behave like terrorists. So you know their tactics are like terrorists. So so that's why you know they are terrorists. And and you know and and and, and the argument um, it's 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 not it's not easy to to resolve. So um, I think it will be. For Iran, it's also uh, part of their uh, defense strategy, let's say, that they are getting involved in the region before anything comes to Iran. Look, Iran is the most stable country in the region. Like, really nothing, nothing happens there. Uh, Tehran, city of 10 million people, uh, 10 p.m. at night, you see women walking by themselves, nothing is happening. And, and it's not because police is on every corner. No, it's just, it's just pretty safe. Okay, probably I stick to the better parts of Tehran, but still, okay, it's a 10 million city, 10 million people city, so everything is happening in the city. And, and you know, in the center, you, you just feel safe. And they say, okay, that's partly because we do, we are active in the region and we don't wait for the problems to come to us. So, well, these are, these are the, the, this is what they are discussing about. I don't think that, that Iranians would, um, that it would be easy to make Iranians just stop getting involved or stop working on their missiles, um, unless there is like a really long-term incentive, long-term deal where they would get a lot, they would benefit a lot from, uh, the, the only, only something like this would make them, you know, change their strategy, change their behavior. Yeah. Well, you know, but what's what's very difficult from the outside, and you are an Iranian insider now, and that's why I'm asking. It's and I noticed from Eastern Germany. Think about it, how difficult it was to see what is what the people on the ground, the the the, the actual people who live in that country, what is their opinion, 
and what is an oppressive government, a tyrannic government opinion, right? So we see this in North Korea, we see this in Iran, we kind of assume this for China, maybe true or not, we assume this for Russia, maybe true or not. But we, we have trouble, and I think the US is always very careful to make that distinction, even though it gets lost. We know is there's people on the ground who have maybe very different incentives, very different goals, very different objectives, very different opinions, but they are not, um, they're not allowed and they are not able to, to really create a voice in that country because of suppression or maybe because they are too stupid. You know, you can say this about Eastern Europe. Why did the revolution in 89 not happen in 96 or 49? That's a very interesting discussion to have, I think. It's so what when you and you said that earlier, there isn't a big political um, revolution that you see coming up. And I think the US was very supportive when there's demonstrations and then they die down after two days because people lose their jobs. And, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of ramifications from this. Um, when you when you get a, a sense of what people on the ground actually feel, um, even though they're not able to officially say that, um, and maybe they're dissidents, but what do you think are the goals of the population? Do they differ from the administration? Is that something you can talk about? Yes. Yeah, so I think it's in Iran. You have it's a it's a it's a quite diverse society. So you have, you know, different parts of population may may think in a bit different way. So uh, the wealthy parts of Tehran are, in terms of their mindset, in terms of their aspirations, ambitions, the lifestyle that they would like to have, it's it's very much like like Western Europe, like like the Western world. Um, the same goes in terms of how religious they are, their um, uh, what what they need, what they want in terms of personal, you know, freedom, political freedom, and so on. On the other hand, uh, when you go to smaller cities, people are much more conservative. You can even see this in the way you know they dress, the way. Uh, you know what what lifestyle they have, which is much more religious, much more um, um, dogmatic uh, in terms of mindset. Um, so so yeah, so it's so it's not the case that you know all Iranians think the same. Um, there is no opposition in the country uh, for you know different reasons. I probably think it's it's similar to China. Which, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, quite an efficient machine, right? That is working there, the system, yeah. uh, and and that's it, and it's just controlling everything. So I think it's just similar, similar picture there. Um, so, uh, but people, you know, at least over the last, you know, four years, when it was really tough, I mean, and it was really depressing, depressing because they had a lot of hope. It was amazing. It was so much hope, like 2016, 17. And then Trump came over and, and, and this hope was crushed, right? So without getting into argument whether, you know, what was justified was what, what not, uh, just what I, what I saw uh, when I talked to people was that uh, their optimism, you know, and, and, and hope that I could see 2016 was gone, completely gone. And, um, but still, you couldn't sense that people suddenly thinking about, you know, revolution, going out on the street and, I don't know, fighting with the government or who or whoever. Um, people were more always focused on evolution. So they want change. They want, like everywhere, usually want the system to change in one way or another, maybe in Iran a bit more, but, uh, but more for evolution than revolution. That's that. There was always my my sense. Maybe maybe it might change, but I've I've. This is what I've always experienced. Yeah, I remember the days of '89 uh, when uh, you know people were on the streets, but it was all. I mean, it was ninety nine 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 point nine nine percent peaceful, right? And then people were like, "Well, simply we want to go to Western Germany for a couple of days," and they were like, "Okay, you can go, but you have to like go through this process, right?" And then a week later, they said, "Oh, yeah, you can still go, but you can't. You can only go to Berlin." And then a week later, they were like, "Okay, you can go wherever you want." And then a week later, okay, you, now you get the Western Germany would give you money when you come over, right? Just to visit Western Germany, it was a very interesting program. 
And this changed so quickly. Like it was an evolution, but the evolution was every week there was a different yeah. uh, reaction to that pressure. So I feel like it always starts with an evolution, but the speed of the evolution looks to the outsider like a revolution. Like nobody wants violence. So I think this is true for both so, sides. So, so, so it's a different pace in Iran because I think it's more driven by demographics than than uh, political events. You know, in Eastern yeah. Europe, things had a catalyst and it just started started happening quickly. Um, in in Iran. Uh, this is actually a similarity with with other Middle Eastern um, countries. Is that you know whatever uh, philo philosophy was the dominant one back in 1979 and over the following you know two decades, um, it cannot be the same philosophy right now because the majority of the population were born after the revolution and they just cannot relate to the to these slogans to. Um, you know, to this to this original philosophy. Uh, so they they have different aspirations. They have a different um, uh, worldview and um, and mindset. And and that's why the system has to change. I think same thing in, in Saudi Arabia. Right? People are just super young. They 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 know what they want from the internet basically. And um, so that's why they, they 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 also need to adjust. So it's not because the system wants to adjust, it doesn't have a choice, they need to adjust. So, but that's why it's also happening much slower, I think, um, over yeah. there. Yeah, I fully agree with that. And I was just in Egypt um, for a couple of weeks and I, I, you can see it in Egypt too, right? You see this, this huge modern uh, part of Egypt, which is propelled by young people. But I mean, it goes up to the forties, I feel. And then you have this 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 other part of Egypt, which kind of clashes with it, um, which is you know very comfortable Muslim values, traditional values, keeping you safe, uh, keeping you in the right mind space, being close to God, which is really was I think the the most popular um, philosophy to look at your own country for a long time. And now these young people are there, and they they kind of they both just want I think they just want to be left alone right but when making a cohesive policy out of this is almost impossible because they're kind of the, the, the up, at, at current philosophy how we look at the world they're kind of opposite ends we see this in, in, in Afghanistan right now right so we, we thought it's going to be modern democracy but oh you know what actually what a good part of the country wants is the opposite which is no democracy and being close to God being close to Islamic values being close to Sharia and that's kind of a surprise right so the end of history didn't arrive I mean, like Fukuyama said, it, it isn't yeah. the end of history. The history is still going on, right? So there's always something new. But talking about something new, I want you to give us an idea what is really hot in Iran right now. So we know there's a lot of state-owned enterprises that are basically probably not your focus, but there must be other great businesses. And we heard of Bitcoin mining, but other businesses that are worth investing into where you think this is really going to rocket the next 10 years uh, with or without a big catalyst. Oh, where would you, what are you actively researching right now? What kind of businesses? Mm -hmm. So now there's, you know, the good thing about Iran is, is that it's a, you know, proper economy, well-diversified economy. So all this oil and gas is just, you know, maybe 5% of GDP. Used to be 15, one five before sanctions. And now it's somewhere, I don't know, in single digits somewhere. Um, so uh, the rest you have, you know, manufacturing services. Um, most, of, most of industries, most of sectors are there um, because they, uh, they didn't have a choice. They had to develop all the different industries to become, you know, to 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 as much as possible self-sufficient because of the sanctions, so 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 that basically they could survive um, all the restrictions put on them, um, and it worked. Um, and uh, so this was one thing, but also they had enough scale, a scale of you know again this 84 million people, but also uh, the export markets that are around them, where Iranians, you know, have have traditional historical connections. Uh, many of these countries speak the same language. Um, so, so it was easy, easy for them to export. So what we are looking for is last four years, and I think right now it's also a similar time, that um, it's, it's worth looking at companies that are basically dollar assets that just happen to be listed in Tehran. So uh, you have exporters or companies that sell domestically but at prices that are benchmarked against some, some global prices um, and whenever uh, the local currency drops depreciates um, you know their revenue just jumps together with the dollar their earnings accelerate even more because of operational leverage um, 
they keep their costs in in depreciated real and and the revenue is 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 in dollars uh, so all the all the additional you know uh, dollar appreciation all this additional revenue goes straight to uh, you know to to operating profits um, so so these are the companies that uh, usually tend to benefit uh, show the acceleration of, of profits first when the currency depreciates and um, so right now the currency started to depreciate again in the second half which uh, which we expected to some extent because there's a couple of factors usually after the presidential election the currency <laughs> depreciates a bit because they try to stabilize it before the election um, then uh, you had lockdowns again uh, and lockdowns um, do have an impact because uh, important sources of hard currency uh, that goes into Iran um, are uh, is the regional trade. One 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 source is the big trade, but this is affected by by U.S. sanctions. So whatever Iran was selling to China, Japan, uh, you know, South Korea, European countries, and so on. So to China they still sell, but but it's not that easy to to get payment. Um, so the regional trade, which is not really affected by sanctions, so whatever goes to Iraq, Afghanistan, Turkey, Uzbekistan, whatever, um, this is an important source of hard currency. So when you have lockdowns, um, then, um, you know, for a couple of weeks, um, uh, border crossings are closed, uh, then you don't have enough dollars. And there are some imports, imports of some essential goods that just have to happen whatever the price of the dollar right so 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 very inelastic so it will just uh, you know the dollar could just jump when the, when there is not enough supply on paper the central bank has quite big reserves uh, or foreign reserves uh, but in reality they cannot access access them so they you, whatever they can access is just uh, not enough so so you know at the end uh, they they have to uh, print money more than they would like to uh, which you know, again, fuels inflation, which fuels the depreciation of the local currency. So you have this moment right now when, uh, again, you had some lockdowns, plus Afghanistan was off for, for some time, but it's actually going back to normal very quickly uh, from the Iranian point of view. Um, so a week ago, the, the main border crossing uh, for trade between Iran and Afghanistan was reopened. And now all three, I think, are, are open and, and working properly. Um, um, Afghanistan reduced um, the um, uh, customs, uh, custom duties on, on, on the Iranian gasoline and oil uh, imports. So, uh, so this has, um, has resumed as well. Uh, and, uh, well, I, I, I was reading that uh, actually the Taliban leadership was in Tehran six months ago. Uh, you know, before the, the takeover, basically, of the country. Uh, so potentially, you know, there was a deal done at that time that Iran would be very pragmatic, basically, with, with the relations with Afghanistan. And I think this is what's happening. Same same for Pakistan, same for, you know, Russia, China, and so on. Um, so, um, so anyway, so what I wanted to say is that um, right now you have a, a couple of factors uh, that affect the the currency. So the dollar is... Is, is moving higher. Given the exchange rate of the dollar versus real and the expected um, future profits, uh, profits of, um, of the Iranian exporters, well, the share prices are way too low. So easy money right now is to buy, uh, buy shares of the, of the exporters of um, uh, uh, Iranian exporters. Now, what else is interesting, what is driven by macro, and all the last four years were very much driven by macro, were the domestically oriented industries. So uh, companies um, that were selling domestically were benefiting a lot from sanctions and currency depreciation because their competitors were just priced out of the market. So when you had a big currency move, um, you know, even exporters from China were just too expensive and, um, and everything, and because of sanctions, everything was getting more difficult. So uh, making the payment, you know, arranging the logistics uh, um, and so on. So uh, we, we saw uh, local companies, uh, even though the whole market was, was not growing, was, was, was stable, um, the, the local producers were gaining market share, so you could see growth there. Um, 
and 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 we were able because there is so much data being reported by by the local listed companies that we were able to track this on a monthly basis to understand the volumes per product line and the unit prices you know at which they were selling uh, to understand okay so uh, who is doing better and versus our expectations and so on um so the, these are these are there, there are actually you know there are, as you know there are many misconceptions about iran in the west right in all areas, right, from uh, uh, misconceptions about the population where, I don't know, many people or newspapers or media are just trying to portray Iran as a country of terrorists who, who hate, you know, Jews and Israel and so on, uh, uh, to, to, you know, misconceptions about the economy of Iran that is just bleeding and and it's just venezuela or zimbabwe and it just fall apart and so on which is obviously all far from from being true uh, you know and when it comes to population um it's a very tolerant and open society when you go there and someone speaks any even as a tourist and someone speaks any english he will approach you and and just to have a chat with you uh you have you know uh Catholic uh, or Christian churches uh, or Orthodox churches, Jewish synagogues, um, Zoroastrian, you know, churches, temples, and everyone is doing his own thing in terms of religion. So, so it's absolutely not true uh, that they're like in, in, intolerant. Um, so it's actually a very open society. Uh, and same for the economy, uh, where uh, actually because of the diversification of the economy because of the fact that big part of the economy is focused on exports um, they and because of the fact that they just allowed the real to depreciate and didn't fight you know to just uh, uh, defend it you know with 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 any reserves they had uh, they they helped it to you know the local companies to uh, improve uh, competitiveness and uh, and actually help the uh, the economy under tough sanctions under Trump. If interesting thing is that unemployment actually went down after under Trump, uh, unemployment in Iran, uh, because um, manufacturing companies had such you know great couple of years. I think there were two years that when they had like record profit growth. Uh, that uh, they they increased employment, you know, they started hiring people. So it was like counterintuitive. But going back to your question, um, so you, you, we are looking at a couple of manufacturers that are uh, providing um, um, specialized machinery to the to the uh, domestic petrochemical and steel plants. Uh, there is a very big petrochemical and steel industry in Iran. Uh, you know, petrochemical industry is probably Together with with the Saudi petrochemical industry, the, the, these are the most profitable industries in the world, uh, petrochemical industries. Well, obviously, thanks to, to the cheap gas that they have. Um, um, also, Iran makes more than a million cars per year. So the steel industry is big um, and all the related uh, industries as well. Um, and um, there are companies that provide some uh, specialty um, you know, parts uh, machinery to these bigger plants where the, those manufacturers have very strong pricing power because, well, because they are so small and specialized in the big picture for the for the big manufacturers that they don't really care that much about the pricing. And it's also yeah. very difficult to import them. So so they have a good pricing power. It's uh, they don't have uh, competition from the foreign competition. So um, so we are looking at those. We're looking at some local brands in in the um, in the cleaning products uh, and in the um, um, companies that make um, just everyday equipment, household equipment, uh, they're also well positioned to have strong brands, uh, well positioned to to grow their businesses. There is one interesting supermarket chain that is growing online delivery, uh, exactly the same as you could find in I don't know. Ocado in the UK or some other companies in in, in Western world. Um, so 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 this is something where we see strong growth over the next couple of years over over the next decade. I mean, my favorite company, if I could 
by the whole company. We are actually working on it. So one thing is 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 you know being active on the being an active manager on the stock market, but we are looking also at a couple of companies that we would basically like to take over, like separate from the fund, just arrange a, an SPV and and take advantage of the fact that I think over the next couple of quarters there may be some opportunities that will not happen again, you know, a couple of years from now, because it will be still too early for the big players from the West to go on and get involved because it will always takes time to get a set, you know, to, to set yourself up to, uh, you know, your presence in Iran compliant with all the regulations, sanctions and so on. You know, it will take, you know, uh, 18 months or whatever. So there will be a window where it will be, it should be possible with some sanctions the key sanctions lifted, it should be possible to acquire some assets um, from sellers that don't care. Um, and just to give you an example, you know, there is, a, for example, a holding company that, that holds uh, brands, uh, consumer staples brands like personal hygiene products. They have around 20% of the market, well-known brands and so on. So this is the type of stuff when you have foreign investors that go to some new frontier market, they always go for these these type of investments first, yeah. right? Brewery, you know, soap maker, whatever, right? So something sounds like cycling. sounds like out of a Jim Rogers playbook. Exactly, exactly. You would, so, would buy those companies in a heartbeat. So yeah. even in frontier markets, they often trade at 20, 25 times earnings, even if, if the market trades at 10 or whatever, right? Yeah. So here we're looking at one holding company that is also trading at the, the, the below the NAV. So effectively, uh, you can buy these assets at around, you know, let's say five times earnings. And just to give you the order of magnitude, 20, they control 20% of the local market, plus they export a bit, and, and it's valued at $100 million. I mean, $100 million for 20% market share in a big country like this, profitable, super profitable, you're buying this at five times earnings. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that Unilever will be happy to pay 10x, you know, in a couple of years. So yeah. uh, this is the type of stuff that I would be super excited about to to just to just take over, you know, in full. It sounds really exciting. I mean, that sounds like a slam dunk, um, seeing it from the outside. And if, if there's ever a catalyst coming up there. Um, one thing that I, that I hear from you is really, I, I find that really counterintuitive, but maybe these all these sanctions actually helped Iran, and here's, here's the argument, is most countries that export a lot of commodities, they sooner or later fall into the Dutch disease, so there isn't much you can do about it. And we see this in Africa a lot because the economies are so small, it literally takes one oil field to destroy the value of their currency. The currency appreciates, which you think, oh, it's a good thing. Well, it is if you are getting money from that oil field, but if you're an entrepreneur and in the services sector, not um, part of that um, of that commodities extraction, you're in trouble because um, local labor compared to the US dollar is extremely expensive. That happened in most African countries because they find commodities um, to a certain extent. Angola is the best example, and Nigeria. Um, it basically destroys your own economy. It seems like the sanctions and the inability to export um, has helped Iran to stay competitive because what you're saying seems extremely competitive, well-educated. Um, labor force for, for $200, $500 a month is incredible, right? So this is a great deal um, that you will hard press to find even anywhere in the world. Um, so maybe all these sanctions, as, as terrible as we feel they are, and it's probably the hampered economic growth, they put the whole um, country on a different track than it would be if it was just oil and gas extraction. Well, definitely, but that happened a long time ago, right? I mean, not, not because of Trump's sanctions. Um, so yeah. maybe maybe there was a risk some time ago, but I, I don't know, wouldn't be able to tell that Iran Iran would end up with, you know, a, an economy similar to Iraq, for example, where it's, you know, 90% or more, it's just oil, right? And, and yeah. nothing. Saudi or Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Arabia right? Yeah, I think of Saudi Arabia, where literally nobody has to work and nobody does work. So it seems no, like- No, they want stations. to change it, but it's just impossible that right now. It's too late. Yeah. They, they try to yeah. they, they try to take away some of the you know social handouts and then and then uh, and then they got they got scared that people might just revolt right and and go on street on the of street and, yeah. and and threaten the royalty right uh, uh, so so they backed backed away so uh, look it, it, but it's also different tradition different culture in Iran 
it's, you know, these are Persians. I mean, they were building the first highways so that caravans could go faster, right? So it's, uh, I guess yeah. it's, it's in, in, in their blood. Plus, you know, the location of Iran. I mean, this is another, look, this is another catalyst. Um, so Belt and Road Initiative, you know, the, the Chinese big project yeah. to connect, you know, the uh, Chinese cities with, with Western Europe. This is a real thing. And, uh, and Iran is exactly, uh, you know, on, on, the, on this path. And potentially it's one of the key, yes, I would say it's one of the key elements of, to it. So you already have a, a train, uh, a freight train that goes from Shanghai or Xi'an, I think, in China to, to Tehran. And um, it cuts the time and cost uh, quite significantly versus the, the sea route, or especially right now when you don't have you know, the, all the problems with the uh, containers and, uh, and, uh, um, and, and the ships that, are, that you have right now and the inflation of the, um, of the shipping costs. So <clears throat> um, Iran um, is important for China from that perspective. Um, it's also important for China because it's uh, one of the sources uh, of, of energy, of long-term energy supplies for China, which they need and they are, you know, they think very long-term, so they want to secure those. It's not only Iran, they're speaking about the same thing with Saudi Arabia and so on, but, um, but this is what they need. Um, so, and what, what Iran needs, Iran needs money, Iran needs investment, Iran is underinvested, underinvested in so many areas. So pretty much whatever money you invest in Iran, it will be a productive investment most likely, right? Because there is stuff that is needed. If you, if you build infrastructure, it will fuel growth for the next generation, right? So, so it's, it's, it's a very productive investment. So it's not like, you know, Japan in the 90s. Um, so um, they signed this long-term partnership where China said, look, we're going to invest $400 billion over the next 25 years. And... Um, big part of it will be invested, will be front-loaded. So we invest more at the beginning. We will invest in your oil and gas infrastructure. So we will help you um, uh, produce more oil and uh, we'll build highways, airports, um, uh, ports, and, um, and also we'll help you upgrade your petrochemical industry, if I remember correctly. So, I mean, the details are quite vague. They never published it. So we will see, obviously. But um, and, and Iran will have to pay for it, but they will pay in discounts, in big discounts on oil uh, that they will sell to China. So when you look at it from Iran perspective, look, Iran's GDP, I mean, it's always difficult to calculate it because you don't know which exchange rate to take, I mean, from which period, but let's say it's $200 billion. So they are getting, you know, $400 billion over 25 years. So it's like, 8% GDP per year, but it's actually front-loaded part of it. Um, directed into the areas where investment is really needed. So it will be very productive, helping the growth for the next 25 years. And all they have to do is they actually have to uh, dig up more oil, which with which Chinese will help them uh, and just sell it at a 30% discount. So what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is that this oil would just remain underground because with sanctions, they wouldn't be able uh, to sell it uh, and to extract it probably. Um, um, and, and they would be getting no money. So um, it actually looks, you know, this is a bigger deal than, you know, Eastern Europe got from the um, European Union cohesion funds. Uh, it's, it's actually bigger than Marshall Plan. Um, so, so it's a huge thing for Iran. And um, yeah. so they, they, they still haven't published the details, which is obviously an argument that maybe it will not happen. But on the other hand, it makes sense. It makes commercial sense. So it's not based on some uh, friendship, um, um, you know, that they, um, that they want to show that, you know, Iran is close with China and against the US or whatever, something that can easily change, right? Um, but it's just based on um, on common interest, and and it makes commercial sense. That's why that's why I'm 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 quite optimistic about that. So, and this is actually a, a pretty good alternative for Iran. Um, 
when it comes to JCPOA negotiations. So Iran can actually say, well, to some extent that, look, we don't have to do it. We could go together with China. But Iran understands that, you know, their position versus China is stronger if they also have JCPOA signed with the West, right? So they, they actually need both. But anyway, so, um, so, so this is, so this is um, one of the catalysts that could, that could happen to Iran as well uh, over the next two decades. Yeah, one thing that comes to mind too is a bit, a bit like we, you know, Jim Rogers was so bullish on China in the 90s, right? So every book was basically put your money in China, put your money in China. And he was right, but he was also wrong in the sense of for the, for the, for the outside investor who expected um, an open equity marketplace, you know, where, where equities would, would rise up without state intervention. It didn't happen that way. So as an, as an outsider to start a company in China or to be active as an investor on the ground, it's still hard, was always hard since the 90s. Investing in equities was very, it, it didn't go where the GDP growth went, which clearly he was right on that, right? So there was no doubt about it. But making money off this forecast was hard. And I feel something could happen with Iran, China, and Russia. Um, you know, they already play these war games together. And it's always against Taiwan or it's, like it's, against, some, it's against Vietnam, some, someone out there. It, I feel like there is, and obviously that's a downside. Um, it doesn't have to materialize, but there is this, this excess developing against, you know, the U.S. or against Europe. And while the investments would still grow, and Iran will undoubtedly grow, it's hard to really profit from this because the company, it's difficult to sell on equities, it's difficult to get the money out. It's um, maybe the equity, the shareholders are being defrauded by the government, right? So the money is going somewhere else, it's going into the, the actual stakeholders, it's going. So I always feel that is this, we, we think of the public marketplace and equity marketplace as something that, that works with our rules that the EV has established and it sooner or later grows the equity. equity. But I don't think that really happened in China and also Russia. That's the problem right? with all these big oil companies where we never know who's actually controlling them or where does the money go. Do you think that there's a huge risk of, in Iran? And you obviously are, re are ready to take that risk. But, but how, do you, uh, how do you make sure you're not you're losing your hair? Even do the economy grows, right? But the equity investment bit will never really return any profits. The cash that you get out in your bank account. Yeah, OK. So first of all, Iran is not Russia, um, meaning the structure of the economy is different. Russia, yeah. much more reliant on commodities and on this uh, state-owned, huge state-owned companies. I had a couple of wealthy Russians on an investor trip in Tehran. And, well, they, uh, they were super excited because we were stuck in the traffic, you know, in, the, in this taxi in Tehran. And they were looking around, it's like, wow, it's like Moscow from 20 years ago or from 30 years ago. Also, you know, the city is similar size, the traffic is as bad, you know. And, uh, um, yeah. but, but then I told them, we were talking about the economy, and I said that, look, probably half of the country, half of the economy is controlled by, by the state one way or another. So state-linked entities. In Iran, it's Revolutionary Guards, uh, plus some state-owned uh, entities, religious foundations, you know, different entities in different countries, but it's roughly half of the economy. And, and, and these Russians just looked at me and, okay, so, so, so they screwed up. I mean, why only half? I mean, it's like, yeah. from the Russian perspective, it's only half, right? Because in, in Russia, it's, I don't know, 80, 90%, right? And then when you, when you, when you read about it, it's actually the average for, for the, for the emerging economies, you know, from India, Brazil, even to South Korea, if you look at Chebos as, as some sort of, I don't know, also linked uh, entities, uh, it's usually around 40, 50%. So this is pretty much in line. Um, so there is much more private business that has nothing to do with commodities. So this is the, the big difference. Um, and, it's, and it's also visible on the stock market. The stock market has 50 different industries listed with the biggest one being, I don't know, petrochemicals probably with something must be like 25% of the market cap and then lower some mining, some banks, some tel telecoms, but you have everything, pretty much everything that you, that you see in other markets. So you have different exposures, so exposures to different parts of the economy. So there's always something in the bull market, like uh, fundamentally, right? Where, where things are improving. 
um, so, 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 so this gives you the opportunity to uh, to find businesses where the the the, the majority owners have similar, you know, aligned interest with with minority shareholders. Um, Yes, yeah, so so that's the main difference with with with, with these countries. Then um, you could say, okay, that if foreign investors don't go there, then there will be not enough money, and these equities will stay cheap forever. For for example, uh, well, uh, I'm not sure. So I, I don't I I I don't believe. I actually that, wouldn't worry that, about that. I mean, that if you can, can stay at four yeah. times, five times earnings. If they stay for a longer time at those at those valuations, I'm happy to wait. Okay, I'll wait. I'll be collecting at that time, you know, with, with those valuations, I'll be collecting 20% dividend yields. So I wouldn't be, and also last year when you had a bull market in the local equity equities, uh, you had four or five million, you know, retail investors coming to the market and, and, and obviously just driving it higher. So there is, um, you know, capital in the, a lot of retail capital as well. Um, yeah. But also, you know, so think about the last four years. So under Trump, you had pretty tough situations. So the currency dropped by 85% under Trump. And yet the stock market, the index uh, returned, well, roughly doubled, so around 100% in dollar terms. So even in those, you know, really this bad situation with super unstable um, economy, uh, geopolitics were Basically, people were talking about some military conflict every quarter, right? Or, or, or if not, then new sanctions were coming in. Um, you had you had a very good performance of the stock market. I think it was the best equity stock market in the world in uh, 2019. Uh, the, yes, 2020 was also decent. Um, yeah, so 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, and and, a, and the stock market at the end of the day. It's it's driven by by earnings growth. So yeah. uh, so this is the question you need to answer, right? Will earnings grow there, or will they will they just um, uh, become stagnant there, or just um, uh, go down? Look, another point that you made is that you know those sanctions actually helped uh, the economy as a whole because it had to diversify. It had to it had to um, adjust to um, unstable conditions, which is, I think, I think it's pretty good because local companies are like the opposite of the Western companies. Western companies are, you know, organized just in time, right? Must be super efficient, uh, maximize, you know, your margin and, um, and, and, and work, work, you know, just to deliver, deliver goods just in time. So in Iran, they are organized just in case, right? Because people understand that they don't know the future and the future, they expect the future to be volatile. So they really have to be built to survive, right? So um, this, is, uh, this is a good thing now, but it will be also a source of additional profits, I think, in the future. Because now, now think about the economy that is, that is opening up. Um, when, you have, when you have opening up of the economy, I Iran starts selling more oil. They will get at least $50 billion per year from uh, oil revenue. $50 billion solves all the problems in Iran, meaning uh, budget deficit, uh, the uh, trade balance, uh, financing of imports. Uh, with, this, with this amount, everything is pretty much solved. Um, so what, what happens? Inflation stabilizes because the inflation is around 40% right now and mainly because of, of the currency depreciation. Before Trump, inflation was single digit. It actually touched 7 or 8% at some point, but it was around 10% for quite a long time. And, and there is no reason why it shouldn't go back there. Um, so when you have stable prices, uh, local companies, uh, local consumers as well, but local companies um, um, will be able to, to forecast things, to, to maybe make long-term plans, long-term investment plans. So they will start to invest. Uh, also, interest rates should go down. Uh, when inflation goes back to 10%, uh, you know, why, why uh, and there is no problem with budget deficit, uh, why uh, interest rate, you know, yield to maturity on, on the local bills uh, should be 22%. I mean, it will, it will be lower. So, 
Um, so with lower um, interest rate, lower financing costs, and better stability in, 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 in the macro stability, uh, companies will start to invest. Uh, plus, they will also will be able to allow themselves to maybe keep, I don't know, lower inventories, not plan for war, but just plan for normal you know, uh, business as usual conditions, um, which should help improve their margins. Exporters will actually be able to um, export without looking, trying to disguise their, um, their products as non-Iranians, so just maybe smuggling them through Oman or Pakistan or whatever. This costs money, everything costs money, and offering discounts to entice the buyers. So, and this hurts them, uh, their margins. So, so this will help with the margins, plus volumes will, be, will go higher because many exporters are just selling below their capacity. Um, so you have um, uh, with uh, economy that, uh, that is, you know, reintegrating with the rest of the world, um, a lot of good things will happen, including the, uh, which will affect uh, profits, which will affect investment, which will affect GDP growth. And also with, you know, lower interest rates, this is another argument why those valuations uh, will just not stay at, you know, where they are now, which we see, you know, we, we find companies that are trading at forward three to four times earnings, right? And, and, and yeah. with those kind of valuations, investment risks are really, really manageable. I mean, you don't have to worry about yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, it sounds really fascinating. It just, so, so we know that as a disclaimer, anyone can invest um, at what point in your fund, uh, what's the minimum, and... Um, yeah, it excludes anyone who is a U.S. person, right? Everyone else, anyone else can invest. Yes, so everyone who is not a U.S. person and um, anyone uh, who could who can invest at least one hundred thousand euros. So this is our regulat regulatory minimum uh, yeah. because we are classified as alternative investment fund, and we can only offer the fund to professional investors who are defined in the Netherlands. This is where we are based as. Uh, anyone who can invest 100,000 uh, euros. Okay. Well, that was fascinating. That was very enlightening. Okay, thank you so much for your time. Uh, that was awesome. What a, what a great insight into Iran. Great. Thank you, Thurston. Hey, talk to you soon. Thank you, Maciej. Thanks. Take bye -bye. care. Bye-bye.